0: welcome to the latest episode of The Core Curriculum, the Christian Humanist Radio Network's continuing series on the core texts of the Western canon. Today, we are discussing book two of Plato's Republic. My name is Edward Song, and I am an associate professor of philosophy at Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California. And joining me on the show today are Joshua Altmanshofer, who's been teaching Defense Against the Dark Arts for the last 13 years at an international school in China where he lives with his wife and four daughters. Actually, no, we know that that can't be true because no Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher has lasted more than a year. (laughs) In fact, Joshua, appropriate for our episode today, teaches character education, which is maybe the same thing in some ways. When Joshua is not taming bogarts and basilisks, he co-hosts the Christian Humanist podcast before they were live. Welcome to you, Joshua.
1: Thanks. It's uh, really good to be here.
0: Also joining us today is Charles Hackney, who is an associate professor of psychology at Briarcrest College and Seminary in Caronport, Saskatchewan where he lives with his wife and three kids. Charles is a co-host of the Book of Nature podcast on the Christian Humanist Radio Network, and he is the author of a book that will be relevant for the latter part of our discussion today, a book on martial virtues. Welcome to you, Charles. Hello. So I have never recorded with either of you, I don't think, um, and I don't think you guys have recorded with, with each other.
2: That is correct. That is correct.
0: Uh, it's kind of funny how the Christian humanist world introduces you to so many people. I wonder if, um, well, Joshua, you said that you went to uh, college with Michael Farmer, I guess.
1: Yeah, that's right. We were we were at the same small college in Georgia, Toccoa Falls College.
0: Uh-huh. And uh, have you met any of the other luminaries in the Christian humanist radio network in person?
1: I don't think I've met anybody else in person. I've been on a few other shows uh, with the crossover events and so on. And a few people have been on our show before they were live. But, uh, yeah, I don't believe I've met anybody in person. If I have met you in person, I'm leaving you out. I apologize. <laughs>
0: <laughs> How about you, Charles? Have you met any of the others in person?
2: I have not. It's uh, all been online interaction. I started as a uh, listener of the, uh, the original uh, podcast podcast. Uh, and, uh, back when there were, um, there was, uh, comment, uh, you know, discussion threads, I would, uh, frequently post comments and get into, uh, into discussions with the hosts. Uh, and then, uh, I, one of them interviewed me when, uh, my book came out, uh, oh, about it's 10 years now. My book, that book came out. So it's been a while. Uh, and, uh, then I was approached, uh, by email to see if I was interested in this spinoff, uh, book of nature, uh, science podcast. So yeah, I have not actually met anybody face to face.
0: It's funny how that works. The network is so big and the relationships are so robust and genuine. It's kind of surprising because I think the fact of the matter is almost nobody has ever met anybody except for the original three. And the various (laughs) spouses that uh, are involved, I suppose they know each other. Uh, I have had the pleasure of breaking bread with Nathan Gilmore once at a conference, but that's the extent of my interactions. Well, in any case, our topic today is book two of Plato's Republic. I thought it would be fun just to start out by quickly asking both of you if you remember when you first read The Republic. How about you, Charles?
2: Oh, that would be uh, as an undergraduate taking, uh, taking some philosophy courses.
0: And do, do you have any initial, uh, any memories of your initial impression?
2: Uh, my initial impression, uh, I mean, first one, and I think this is going to be something we come back to as we talk through this, uh, was uh, uh, Plato's not really a big fan of individual freedom. Uh, in his ideas about how a society should be run
0: he's very particular about how he likes his stories told that's for sure um how about you joshua do you remember the first time you read the republic or or am i right in thinking that maybe this is the first time
1: this is my first time so i do remember it uh (laughs) (laughs) yeah
0: and you you in fact are you haven't read ahead so presumably you've read book one and presumably you've read book two
1: Yep. That's about it. And, um, actually I mostly just read book two. I, I did go back and read parts of book one. Um, but I just jumped right into what we were talking about. <laughs> so, um, Super. Yep.
0: Well, it'll be interesting to have your fresh perspective. I myself also ran into it in a introduction to philosophy class, I guess, a course, in ancient philosophy. Um, it left an impression, uh, maybe especially book two, which is one of the reasons why I was particularly interested in hosting. So I thought I would kick us off with just a brief summary, a kind of an overview of what book two is about, uh, before we sort of jump in sequentially and walking through the major topics. Uh, but just to remember where we are, back in book one of The Republic, Socrates strikes up a conversation on the nature of justice, with Cephalus and his son Polemarchus on his way to attending some religious festivals. As is often the case, Socrates quickly shows that his interlocutors know very little about what they're talking about. The debate, however, is taken up by the sophist philosopher Thrasymachus, who angrily suggests that justice is nothing more than the advantage of the stronger. That is to say, justice just is that which those who are powerful say that it is. After a lengthy debate, Socrates dispels Thrasymachus' argument, though he offers no account of his own as to what justice really is. And Thrasymachus leaves in a huff. And so now we find ourselves in Book 2. And here, Glaucon and Adamantus... Socrates' interlocutors, as well as Plato's brothers, for what it's worth, they end up taking up Thrasymachus' argument. They're sympathetic with Socrates' overall view, but they feel dissatisfied with the lack of an account on what the nature of justice really is. So they decide to play devil's advocate, advancing Thrasymachus' argument so that they might together say something more positive and substantive about what justice really is. They want to know whether or not justice really is the best kind of a thing, as Socrates suggests, and suggest that if it really is, then Socrates would have to show that justice is the best kind of thing, that it would be better to be a genuinely just person who is nevertheless thought to be the worst kind of scoundrel uh, than it would be to be a genuine scoundrel who is wrongly thought to be saintly and just by all. So faced with this challenge, Socrates proposes that they start off by examining what justice is in the city, or polis, what political justice is. In seeing what justice is like writ large, he hopes that they might deduce certain things about the nature of justice that they can then apply to see what justice in the individual psyche is. So the book then proceeds with a discussion that will occupy, the better part of it, a construction and analysis of what an ideal or perfectly just city would be. So that's where we are. And book two, after some pleasantries, kicks off with this account of the hierarchy of goods. Um, Do either of you sort of want to quickly unpack what what that hierarchy of goods is?
1: Um sure the way i the way i s kind of saw it is that there's the three levels they break down is that there are um the irksome things, but they end up valuable, so um things like uh anything I guess where you'd have to work at it, but then there is a reward in the end uh, would fall into that category um yeah, like exercise, yeah actually. Ex-
0: I, I actually don't think that exercise is one of those things, but probably most people think that exercise is one of those things. That you do it just because it's good for you. You do it for what it gets you.
1: Yeah, and I think what you just said there's a good point because I think that's that's the, <laughs> the difficulty of these categories is that different people are going to put them into different different mm-hmm. ones. And that's that's kind of the question of justice is where does justice fall mm-hmm. within these? Mm-hmm. Um, then he has this category that he calls enjoyable and harmless. Um, so they're, they're simple pleasures. Um, they're maybe not having any large or, um, like quickly identifiable impact on your life, but they're, they're enjoyable things. And then there are the things that we enjoy both for the thing itself and the consequences of the things itself. And, uh, for that one, he put into that category, I believe things like sight and good health and, uh, those sorts of things. So is, uh, justice in that highest category of it's good for its own sake, and also for the consequences that that come out of it, do you guys have anything to add to that summary?
2: Well, I mean uh, we're we're framing the argument here. Glaucon is gonna say that it doesn't uh, that uh, justice doesn't belong in that highest category. It actually belongs in the lowest category, yeah, because nobody actually likes doing justice. It's not fun, but you know we do it because we gotta because the outcomes better than there not being justice.
0: Yeah, that's kind of... um, This technical bit of, of categorization ends up serving this really remarkable purpose in the argument because they end up... Again, the suggestion is that, in fact, justice is the worst kind of good. I mean, it is a good, but the only reason you do it is because you're afraid of the consequences of what would happen to you if you got caught such that if you really could get away with things then uh you wouldn't hesitate to be unjust justice turns out to be just for losers as it were people who can't actually get their own way and so glaucon i guess is sort of canvassing public opinion on the matter and suggesting that this is in fact the way that most people think about the nature of justice while Socrates comes on the scene and actually suggests that it's not that at all. It's the very, very best kind of justice that is worth doing for its own sake, uh, as well as for the sake of, of the other goods that it gets you. Um, you had a question, I think, Joshua, um, and I think it figures here about the appearances of justice is all that matters argument. Is that
2: right?
1: Yeah, I was just wondering. I mean, so we're we're only in book 2. Um but basically the uh the brothers as they lay out the argument, they are they're playing devil's advocate and they are they're laying out this this argument that they want Socrates to defeat, um which is that um it's the appearance of justice that matters. Um you can be as unjust as you want as long as everybody thinks that you're actually just. Um but then we don't really get the opportunity to hear uh the end of uh Socrates' argument on that, and so I don't know if we uh want to spoil the end of the book um but i was just as I was reading it the the argument was really sitting wrong with me i didn't I didn't like it um m- partly because I disagree with it from the start, but I was just wondering like are there are there like obvious flaws in this argument that that maybe were not mentioned in this book um that we wanna mention or do we want to just accept it as it is and, and take it as as Socrates' response to it?
2: Well, we're still pretty early in uh, the Republic. Uh, just I'm trying not to spoil too much, but uh, we do get uh, sort of the uh, sort of the answer here by the time we get to Book Nine. Um, book Nine, we sort of you know had this long kind of meandering. Um, Uh, voyage through several different forms of justice and different angles on justice and the kind of nutshell version of where we're going with this uh, is that uh, Socrates is going to argue that the appearance of justice is in fact not better than real justice because uh, injustice is corrosive to psychological integrity uh, it enslaves our lower nat- it enslaves the higher nature to the lower nature, uh, rendering us incapable of true happiness.
0: Charles, you just spoiled everything.
2: Next, you're going to tell us who Kaiser Soze
0: is. <laughs> 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 and Rosebud and all that. No, um, yeah. So no, that's, no. I mean, that's a a good way of foreshadowing where the argument is certainly going to go. Um, to me, the amazing thing about the setup of the argument is that they set up the problematic so dramatically uh, and so existentially. And that especially comes out in the story of Gaiji's ring that uh, I guess Glaucon tells the story to try to illustrate what exactly is at stake. Um, and, all, and, and also to... to, to to illustrate our attitudes about the nature of justice. So the Gaiji's ring story, I I guess this is a kind of a common story in Athens of the day, but there is a farmer who is walking in his field and there's an earthquake that happens uh, and it opens up this cavern underground that he explores and he finds a magic ring, a ring of invisibility as it were, which he then uses to uh, infiltrate the castle, seduce the queen and kill the king and take over power. And Glaucon's point is, isn't that what we would all do? Isn't the only reason why we obey the rules and play nice with everybody is because we're afraid of the consequences that will happen when we are caught. It's that we, uh, we aren't strong enough to actually get what we want. And if we were able to, if we had a magic ring or if we actually did have enough power, then we would be unjust and and do whatever we want. Isn't that really the case? Um, right? It's not about how we act in public. It's how we act in everything that we do in private. Doesn't that reveal the real nature of, of justice? Um, and then so continuing on, he... he he sets up the problem like this. He wants Socrates to have to show that it's better to be a just person who's genuinely just in his soul but who is thought to be a scoundrel than it is to be somebody who is thought to be a saint but is actually unjust in, deeply unjust in his heart. And so there's this rather remarkable passage Um So it's better to be a just person who is whipped, stretched on a rack, chained, blinded with fire, and at the end when he has suffered every kind of evil, he'll be impaled and will realize then that one shouldn't want to be just, but to be believed to be just. And so Glaucon's challenge is that he needs to show, that Socrates needs to show that it's better to be that person, stretched on a rack, whipped, chained, impaled, than to be someone who everyone thinks is a saint everybody thinks this person is mr rogers but deep down actually in his heart he is well he's kaiser soze um so he's, he sets up this this amazing this amazing problematic uh you joshua sort of that reminded you of job a little bit
1: yeah i was i was just thinking that 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 is somewhat similar to the Job story, right? Like we're trying to see, uh, who is Job really, um, in the, on the inside. And you know, the, the, the argument there is that, that he's only loving God and, and doing, doing the godly and, and righteous thing because God continues to bless him. So if you, if you remove all of those things, if you actually put him in the opposite situation and, and everything is, is removed from him, uh, does he continue to love God and, And and we do get a very similar situation there where where everyone everyone comes to him and is is thinking that there must be something wrong that he must be actually have some sort of secret sin that he's not confessing and uh that's that's why God is now punishing him so I I thought that was an 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 interesting parallel um I was not I wasn't suggesting that Plato knew of the Job story although I mean who knows um but uh I just did think it was an interesting parallel
2: uh, yeah, there are some similarities. There are some connections there. One of the, that, that that I did see. One of the huge glaring differences, uh, which I think um, would make uh, our uh, our examination of Job and our examination of this hypothetical tortured just man uh, very different, uh, is that uh, it, it's the uh, the reactions of the gods. Uh, because one of the you know, one part of the argument that we get for why it is better to be unjust but seem to be just is that uh, there is not going to be any divine comeuppance. Uh, right. either in a positive direction or a negative direction, uh, because the unjust man uh, who can a- accumulate power and wealth can accumulate uh, sufficient wealth to give some really good sacrifices to the gods, uh, which will more than cover whatever evil he has done. Uh, and, and there's no pushback, at least not in Book 2, uh, against this idea. Uh, so far, anyway, we... Uh, it goes uncontested that, yeah, the gods are going to be, uh, you know, just fine with this guy who, uh, you know, gives all of these uh, all of these sacrifices, uh, which is going to be the it's a huge contrast uh, with the book of Job. Uh, so we're, we find that Job, uh, not only does Job get, uh, you know, everything back and then some, you know, on an uh, earthly level um um, I mean, we're, I don't think, you know, yeah, we're not explicitly told, but uh, Job's going to have a much better afterlife uh, than the, than his buddies, I presume.
0: Yeah, so jo- Job gets everything back in this world. Um, so ultimately he's vindicated, but for Plato's or Socrates purposes, that isn't going to do because he really wants to try to show that justice is its own reward. In and of itself, not because at the end of the day, you'll either be rewarded by God, or if you do wrong, you'll be punished. Um, so there's a way in which, uh, I mean, Job Job is ultimately vindicated. He gets everything back. Um, but in Plato's situation, the righteous man is not vindicated, and that's precisely, there's no external vindication. His reward as it was was just that he was able to preserve the justness of his soul
2: so i'm might not be a good idea for me to be riffing uh while we're recording because this is going to presumably exist forever uh would that make a stronger connection then with jesus Uh, um up until the resurrection
0: yeah, I mean, well, you know, one thing that you could say at the end of the day is that Socrates, in fact, thinks that justice is that best kind of good where it's good in and of itself, and it's also good for what it gets you. So at the end of the day, the moral, the moral nature of the universe is such that you can have your cake and eat it too. But he sets up the problem in such a way as to, um, Make sure that it is a. Precisely because we don't think of justice as being its own reward, setting it up such that he's trying to see if there are any reasons why you would do this just for its own sake. Um, but yeah, like Jesus, he is the innocent who is whipped and stretched and impaled. Do you have uh, any thoughts about that, Joshua?
1: Yeah, I think that's I mean I think it's an interesting parallel. I mean in my in my translation I think it actually uses the word crucified for that um for that on un- as well for that just Oh, man. how about that? Yeah. So
0: What um what translation are you using? You both, you must both be using the same. Uh Desmond Lee.
1: I am using AD Lindsay.
0: Oh, how about that? Oh. Okay
1: it was just the one that was in our school library so <laughs> i didn't really m- make a make an educated choice i just the practical choice
2: yeah i've got i've got the penguin classics mm-hmm. one so which turns out to be the desmond lee translation
1: yeah we talked
0: about this a bit in episode 1 of this series i'm i'm using the gruba translation which is kind of like the good old standard um Okay. well, in any case, so we've set up the problem to which the rest of the Republic is meant to be an answer, trying to show that it's better to be that um, crucified, persecuted person. That's Socrates' challenge. What could he possibly do to try to show that it's better to be that crucified, righteous person than uh, somebody who owns the world effectively? and is totally corrupt, though everybody thinks that he's Mr. Rogers. And then so we proceed in the argument. Glaucon and Adamantus, they don't just want some technical argument. They don't want a theoretical argument that justice is stronger. They want to know what justice really is. And so to answer that question, Socrates hits on this idea that, well, justice in the individual psyche is a small thing, as it were, this whole project on figuring out the nature of justice might be a little bit easier if we looked at it writ large. So cities, policies can states can be just. Let's look at what justice looks like in a healthy, flourishing city, and then maybe we can learn some lessons as to what the general nature of justice is that we can then go back and apply to understanding what justice is in the individual psyche. So uh, that sets us off down this road where Socrates and Adamantus and Glaucon set about trying to construct the good city, the Callipolis. Um, and uh, so the rest of book two is geared towards trying to to construct this this city. Um, you, Joshua, thought that this kind of made Socrates or Plato the first inventor of the like uh Sim City civilization games.
1: Yeah, I mean it really felt that way as he's laying out his argument. Because he starts with, well, you got a couple farmers and then you don't want you don't want them all working on all these different things all the time, so can we start specializing? Can we get the uh you know, the the tradesman who's who's uh, or the sorry, I think he starts with somebody making shoes or making clothing or something like that. Right. And he can, he can focus on just the shoes and the clothes and the other guy can make the food. And, um, but then it just keeps building out. Well, don't they need, uh, don't they need furniture? Don't they need homes? You got to bring a carpenter in. You got to bring, don't they need prostitutes? (laughs) And so, yeah. (laughs) Um, I just, I, it, it, as I was reading it it felt very much like one of those um SimCity type games or civilization yeah. type games where you start with nothing and your yeah. your job is to maintain like build it and how can you maintain it and, and making your choices of what you know what's the what's the best thing to add next in order to keep my city or my civilization flourishing and not falling apart. So uh yeah, I thought, Oh, they were they were doing that in their minds before they were doing it on their computers, so yeah. just, um,
0: I I should say to people who haven't read it, like he literally says that they need prostitutes. I'm assuming that's what your translations say.
2: Uh, I'm tr- I'm trying to find uh, where we're talking about this because I'm seeing farmers, builders, weavers. About, yeah, so this uh, is
0: when he gets in. Um, well, maybe we should we should back up a little bit. So the um, so we're starting with the city, and we need to understand why cities are begun in the first place. And so Socrates says, well, cities are begun in the first place because people have these basic needs that they need fulfilled. And it's much easier to satisfy those basic needs when you live in community together. Uh, No one is self-sufficient. And then what ends up happening is that people end up specializing in the thing that they're best at. So the people who are best at farming become the farmers in the community. The people who are best at building houses become the The home builders, the people who are best at weaving become weavers, so forth and so on. Canvassing, in the beginning at least, the most basic essential human needs. And then, as they're describing this basic city, um, well Glaucon calls, I think it's Glaucon, calls that basic city a city of pigs. And he thinks that's like a little bit too crude and rough and wants a fancier city. Um, and so Socrates concedes on this point. He says that, well, I actually think your so-called city of pigs is healthier than um, what Socrates calls the city with a fever. But that's fine. We can have the city with a fever, which is a city with, uh, with luxuries, as it were. Um, and so Socrates, uh, this is at 373a, I guess. Let's study a city with a fever, if that's what you want. There's nothing to stop us. The things I mentioned earlier and the way of life I described won't satisfy some people, it seems. But couches, tables, and other furniture will have to be added. And, of course, all sorts of delicacies, perfumed oils, incense, prostitutes, and pastries. So there you go. Um, we need Okay, more.
2: all right, I see that. Yeah, my translation says call girls.
0: Does it really? Okay. Yeah. Well.
2: I don't know, maybe I was hungry when I read it. I just kind of slid past that onto the pastries. You went
0: straight to pastries, yeah. Yes. Um, well, That in and of itself is interesting, that Socrates thinks the basic city that's focused on just our most primitive, material, important needs is the healthier city. But in any case, he acquiesces. Um. Yeah, it's it's crazy to me where in a list of luxuries... Um. You end up with that list, but in any case, Charles, you had a question about the self sufficiency and differentiation that that is assumed at this stage. What were you uh, What were you worried about
2: there? Um, well, I wasn't quite uh, worried. Uh, more uh, curious and uh, interested in the input of uh, a political philosopher. Uh, this idea that uh self-insufficiency and differentiation of aptitude mm-hmm. uh is the basis for society mm-hmm. and so i was that that it got me thinking you know is that the basis of society what other bases might there be uh i mean i i imagine that the uh you know 4th century bc athenians were not uh sufficiently conversant with uh, ancient history archaeology or anthropology to mm. talk about uh, you know historically uh, what is the what you know, what is the basis of the earliest civilization the earliest society mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I was kind of interested uh what uh, you had to say about this notion that uh, at its core this is what society is about
0: yeah, you know one thing that struck me when I was reading this is that how thoroughly modern that sort of conception of the foundings of a city was. Um it's it's geared around the practical aims of providing for people. You get that very, very familiar uh modern idea of the division of labor. Um Yeah, so I was just I was just struck by um how, how modern that seemed. It wasn't some broader sense of community or the good. Uh, some richer, more robust conception of the good. It wasn't like religious reasons, uh, but it was that very practical, very familiar to the modern ear uh, conception of the origin of political society, societies.
1: Um, I think, too, any while other, we're on and, that. Sorry, well, go ahead. While we're on that topic of uh, self insufficiency, um, I think this actually there's there's an interesting parallel between this and then the the story of the ring because with the ring mm. you become invisible um, which is like isolating by its very nature right no one knows that you're there and you're self sufficient in the sense that you can acquire anything that you need for yourself, although often by by stealing or something like that so it 's not true mm-hmm. self sufficiency but there's a, the, the illusion of self sufficiency and then it's also this idea that um like you don't i mean i guess other other people are only there for for your own personal use you don't actually have to um you don't have to actually give and take there's no interaction that's necessary there and so um i i just thought i found that interesting that like the uh as as they're building out this healthy city it's it's built completely on this idea of we have to rely on one another um, in the most healthy city uh before you even add the fever it's it's completely that sort of um reliance upon one another whereas the the idea of the highly unjust person and are we aren 't we all that is the person who thinks I can escape all of this like if if I could just be invisible then then i wouldn't have to uh i guess- i guess i wouldn't have anybody would not need to rely on me I could only take and never never need to give um for what it's worth.
2: Yeah. But, which, but but then you uh then you end off end up uh, off by yourself just going my precious.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's exactly where my mind went actually as I read this. I thought, "Man, this sounds a lot like uh Spiegel and Gollum and and just the corrupting nature of that." And so I guess that's I mean, you kind of spoiled it for us already, Charles, but I guess that's kind of where this argument is going is um when you if if you pursue injustice as its own thing and just the facade of justice is what gets you by, then it is actually uh, corrupting and isolating in that way. It's not actually good for you.
2: Yeah, it's enough to make uh, one think that uh, Tolkien was well read.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, I'm pretty sure he never read The Republic. I just don't think <laughs> it. It's just not what he was about. Nah. Um, he was more a magazine kind of a guy, I think. Um, Of course. Okay, uh, so we're starting in the construction of the good city, it's about satisfying people's basic needs, but that isn't really enough, so we moved on to a luxurious city, the city of pigs, they're building it out, and then they realize that, um, with the, the, with the city with a fever, because they now have all of these new occupations that need to be filled, um artisans and people making tapestries and rugs and pastries and prostitutes, I guess. Uh the city's getting bigger and bigger. Because it's bigger and bigger, its needs get bigger and bigger. They need more land to farm to um, to feed everybody in the society. And, and now their needs are going to start bumping up against the needs of others. They might need to start taking other people's lands or protecting other people's lands when they realize that they need to have a security force of some kind. They need guardians. And so now we have added guardians to the list of people who we need in the... And again, remember what we're doing, we're building... The Calipolis were building the the the, the good city, uh, and so then the rest of Book Two of the Republic turns to the the subject of the, these guardians, these people who are going to keep everybody safe. What is their nature, and how are they going to be educated? And so they start talking about the nature of the guardians, and they um. They note that the Guardians obviously need to be courageous and strong, physically strong. The quality that Socrates used to describe them is that they have to be spirited. But at the same time, they also have to be gentle to their own people. And this seems like a paradox to Socrates. You need people who, I guess, on the one hand, can be fearsome warriors who will uh, do anything to defeat the enemy. And at the same time, towards their own people, they need to be gentle and faithful and loyal. Uh, And then Socrates begins to worry that these are paradoxical characteristics. You're never going to find anybody to who has who has both both of them. Um, But then he realizes of course that um there are other creatures that are like this. Their dogs are like this. Dogs are both loyal to their masters but also fierce to outsiders. So in some ways, these guardians need to have the traits of, of those twin traits. And Socrates thinks that that works out, that they need to be spirited on the one hand. But then interestingly, he says that they need to be philosophical in the other. And he calls them philosophical because they have to be able to judge between friend and foe. So they have these twin characteristics of, of spiritedness and philosophical judgment. They are lovers of knowledge. You guys have thoughts on on that on the, that those particular that particular section on the nature of the guardians or that apparent paradox?
1: I just I for myself I just loved this this little section because um, I work with middle school students and um, you know for a lot of them they. they the love of learning is not a a high priority and so there's there's often questions about you know why do we have to do this why do we have to do that what's this Mm -hmm. class you know can't we can't we just go play can't we just go do these things and um i really love this like uh in in my version it says um when he's talking about dogs he says how could the creature be anything but fond of learning when knowledge and ignorance are its criterion to distinguish between the friendly and the strange and then they say how indeed well but it is is it not the same thing to be fond of learning and to be philosophical? <laughs> and they said, it is. So I just, I, I, I liked that little line of argument. And I, I was thinking, man, I should I should use this in my middle school classes. Like, what does learning actually get for you on a very, like, on a super practical level? Like, it helps you distinguish between who your friends are and who your not friends are, which is which is highly valuable to a middle schooler. I don't know how they'll apply that to their math classes yet. But, um, yeah, <laughs> I, I still think that that general love of learning is something that... Uh, you know, at at our school, and I think most schools were always trying to foster. And I'd not heard this this particular line of argument before, and I, I really enjoyed it.
2: One of the things that I found interesting uh, is sort sort of again, kind of uh, you could say, touching on how modern some of this i these ideas are. Uh, but I don't know. You know, thinking about some historical examples, you, I guess we could just call them timeless. Um, one of the uh, one of the articles that uh, has been making the rounds uh, for a few years now uh, on the internet uh, has involved uh, you know people who are in uh, protection related fields, uh, you know, so law enforcement, military, and such, uh, seeing themselves as the sheepdogs. Mm -hmm. Uh, of society and pointing out how you know uh, on one level sheepdogs are uh, scary and fierce they have sharp teeth just like wolves have sharp teeth Uh, but uh, the fact that they exist to protect and to defend uh, rather than to prey upon uh, everyone else uh, is what uh, separates them from from wolves and what makes them uh, valuable uh, members of society. Uh so yes, yeah, this this idea that uh we want uh a guardian class to have uh this this thumos, uh the, this you know ferocious, uh high spirits, it's a, this aggressive energy. But if we're not careful, if we don't know how to direct that thumos, if we don't know how to how to direct that energy, it's going to end up uh being turned on us and on each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the places that uh, that so, you know, puts my brain uh, is the uh, development of uh, ideals involving chivalry. Uh, if you take a look at uh, like the 10th century, the knights of the 10th century uh, were terrors. Uh, nobody liked them. Uh, they uh, fought with each other, uh, robbed churches, slaughtered the peasants all that sort of stuff and about the best you could hope was that we could take uh these like human machine guns uh and just point them at magyars uh and saracens and say you know kill them kill that way uh but they there wasn't much positive about them and it was uh be it was out of the need uh to deal with some of this, this out of control aggression, which can very easily turn into uh, oppression and theft and all these sorts of things uh, that uh, uh, especially the church uh, starts pushing this idea that uh, knights need to have these uh, uplifting moral qualities uh, as well as prowess uh, and strength and speed.
0: Yeah. So yeah, we should we should note here that uh, Charles is an unusually qualified person to talk about this stuff, since he's literally written a book, uh, written a book on martial virtues in the in the sub on this subject. It is really interesting, isn't it? That um, that that totally makes sense. That point about chivalry, and there seems something paradoxical about the idea that that warriors. Or at the same time, expected to have these incredibly, incredibly refined habits of chivalry and etiquette that that shot through with courteousness and etiquette and respect and social ritual and 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 all of that. But I guess it's it's that apparent paradox is is called for. For I mean, just all the reasons I'm just repeating what you said that that you mentioned that it's like it's a way to counterbalance the fact that during the day at work,
2: they're cutting people's heads off. Yeah, it's uh, a theme that recurs uh, across cultures and throughout histories. Every society that has had any kind of warrior class Mm. has always had to deal with this uh, problem. Uh, How do we cultivate these efficient, aggressive killers who will um, only, you know, direct that violence uh, against our enemies, not against us. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. You see it in the honor culture. I mean, you see it in honor cultures of like the Scottish Highlands that people think are so influential in the in the culture of the American South. But a same kind of um, tolerance and expectation for or valorizing the capacity to do violence in defense of one's friends and family. And at the same time, this um, culture of, of courtesy and gentility. Um, I, I have to say when I was reading this, Socrates describing that, that other trait, as it were, as philosophical was a little bit surprising to me. Insofar so far as it just, it didn't really seem plausible that what they really needed was this ability to discern between friend and foe, that was rooted in philosophical ability. I mean, it just seemed to me that it, it would just simply be much more a matter of recognition, like, I know you're on my side, so I'm not, I'm not going to hurt you. Um, but, you know, there does seem like there's something paradoxical about those two virtues. I, I wonder, Charles, if in, as you think about these things, whether there is a kind of psychic toll that takes place between these two dueling aspects of uh, warrior classes.
2: Possibly. I mean, I've, I've always found it interesting that, um, that this gets rendered as a philosophic disposition. I mean, I guess that's you know, just the best way to translate the Greek, uh, but that it wasn't just called wisdom. I mean, I guess possibly because this is, you know, Plato, and so Plato's idea of wisdom is going to be about uh, contemplating the Eternals. Uh, but if we think about, uh, like, instead of Sophia, a phrenesis, a practical wisdom. Yeah. Practical wisdom is in, uh, about the ability to size up a situation, uh, to perceive uh, what the essential elements of uh, the circumstance are, what goal is to be pursued, how best to pursue it. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm sort of skipping from Plato to Aristotle uh, by doing this, uh, but, you know, whatever. Uh, but, yeah, so if, if we're going to direct this uh, aggressive energy uh, properly, then uh, the guardians are going to have to be able to have this perceptual ability uh, to size up a situation, know uh, what the right thing to do is, and how best to go about it. Yeah, I guess so. You know, that way of casting it does
0: make a lot more sense to me. But you're right. When Plato talks about this stuff, he describes it as being philosoph I mean, he describes the disposition as being philosophical as opposed to, to practical. Yeah. Do you guys want to talk about the education of the Guardians? Yeah. Yeah. So, so we need to get these... People who are going to be fierce and vicious against our enemies, yet kind and gentle to our friends. And so the question then is, well, how are we going to, how are we going to, where are these people going to come from? How are we going to train them? What kind of education do they need? And so in talking about it, Socrates and others, they just sort of assume that the basic standard education of, musica and gymnastike is 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 going to be the the content of their education so these are the twin elements of a, i guess a traditional athenian education Musicae, or music as it's translated at least in my book means both music in the um well the nor- the usual sense for us but also refers to poetry and stories and literature and gymnastics uh includes dance, training in warfare, and physical conditioning. Um and when I read this, I couldn't I couldn't help but think, you guys are I think I'm probably older than both of you. I remember in the in the eighties there was this awful movie called Jim Kata. Did you guys ever hear or see Jim Kata? Oh,
2: I have seen Jim Kata.
0: Oh! Well then, Charles, you are You are a part of the rare few that appreciate that. (laughs) Um, Gymkata was a movie. I'm sure it was made. It was probably made after the '84 Los Angeles Olympics, when I think the men's gymnastics team did well. And like one one of those guys was recruited to make a movie, where basically uh, he would do martial arts, but it was always martial arts in related in relation to like uh, gymnastics equipment. So he'd be walking around town and then whenever he would come across the bad guys there would always be something very much like a piece of traditional men's gymnastic equipment like something like a pommel horse a pommel horse and then he would proceed to kick their butt by like spinning around on the pommel horse. So that is
2: one of the worst martial arts movies ever made. It is just such a thick slice of cheese. <laughs> but yeah but yeah that pommel horse fight scene Oh, look, there just happens to be a block (laughs) of concrete with some rebar sticking out of it that just happens to be positioned exactly where the pommel horse handles would be. And, oh no, I'm surrounded by these, I don't know what, like mutant barbarians. (laughs) Time to kick them. Yeah, and and now I'm going to spin around and kick them in
0: the face. (laughs) Um, But that apparently is exactly what Socrates wants the training for the Guardians to be. They're gonna do they're being trained in the
2: fine art of gymkata. Um and music. Well, okay, to be fair, uh the uh, UFC fighter George Saint Pierre uh attributed a lot of his success to the fact that he uh uh does uh do uh gymnastics as part of his training Oh
0: well for sure. And there are a few people who are fit like a like a gymnast. Um I definitely, I, definitely, yeah, I definitely wouldn't want to tangle with a gymnast, especially if there are gymnastics-like equipment that just happen to be around the park. <laughs> um, so Socrates doesn't talk a lot about the Gymkata training. Uh, he just recommends that we all go see the movie. He does <laughs> spend a lot of time, however, talking about uh, musicae. About music and about the stories that people are going to listen to, and and definitely are not going to listen listen to. Uh, do, do one of you want to sort of unpack that picture of uh, the role of stories in their education?
1: Well, I just thought this was interesting, and um, I think in my questions that you put on the uh, the outline, I was I was maybe a little unfair because I. I I perceived it on my first reading as kind of fear-based like we can't allow these sorts of uh, intellectual contagions into our city it's going to be bad for our kids Um, but then as I I thought further on it like I thought well we all draw lines uh, for our own kids and this is just kind of negotiating where the lines are of what we what we allow them to see and what we what we don't and and what we talk to them about and what we don't Um, you know uh, the and and so really i think it it could be perceived on the on the more positive side of of like how are we um shaping their affections how are we shaping their imaginations like what are what are we allowing them to uh like like what are the best things for that what are the best things to shape their imaginations yeah. in, this, in this way um which uh that's kind of in the the tagline of before they were live is you know how do how do these disney movies shape our imaginations and and move our hearts so um yeah. So that that that's interesting to me. That the the, um, the there's obviously a recognition of the of the power of these things to shape us. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And then it's just kind of negotiating, like, okay, so um, we we all understand there's a power in it. So so what's the best thing to put in there?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that's certainly true. But at the same time, you're right. I mean certainly the tenor going through that particular passage is a concern. It, it, it does seem kind of fear-based, right? Because he he doesn't really say much at all about the stories that they're definitely going to listen to or what particular stories or kinds of stories that he wants to expose the Guardians to in their training. But he spends a lot of time talking about exactly the kinds of stories that they definitely shouldn't allow. Um, yeah, uh J- Joshua what what are the stories that we ain't going to be telling?
1: Um well, he he's pretty hard on uh Homer and uh the other guy I can never pronounce his name correctly. Um the other the other major Easyud? <laughs> yes, thanks. Um and I mean, basically anything. Uh, there, <coughs> actually, I, f- I found this very hilarious um, because it it is the Christmas season, and so there's all this this stuff about Santa Claus. And actually, we watched uh, Tim Allen's The Santa Claus, um, and uh, and and that whole movie is about you know let kids believe for as long as possible in in santa claus even though none of the adults believe it's true um and so this is kind of the opposite tact of that it's like if if adults all agree like this stuff is not true like this is not a falsehood then we definitely should not teach it So, so in this case it's not santa claus it's the gods but if there's any falsehood about the gods then it should not be it should not be presented and if there's any sort of uh noble or heroic character that they are supposed to be modeling themselves after then then we can't have that that hero ever do any anything um, that we wouldn't actually want them to imitate. So we have to eliminate all of those things also.
0: Yeah. We mustn't allow any stories about gods warring, fighting or plotting against one another for they aren't true. I mean, I guess he's okay with fiction, but it's got to be the right kind of fiction. And then he just, he, he's particularly concerned with all of these, what, what I guess are, are pretty familiar Greek Greek mythologies, but, you know, stories of the gods coming and doing crazy things.
2: Um, he, uh, uh... Well, he mentions um, uh, the the foul story about Orenos and the things Hesiod said, says he did and the revenge Kronos took on him. Yeah. Which apparently involves uh, some divine castration. Yes, yes. Um, so yeah, we don't want, uh, our, our young people being told stories about, uh, God's doing that to each other. Yeah. My translation
0: unpacks that story and says that Uranus prevented his wife Gaia from giving birth to his children by blocking them up inside her. Gaia gave a sickle to one of these children, Kronos, with which he castrated his father when the latter next had sex with her. Uh, and then Kronos ate the children he had with his wife Rhea, Until by deceiving him with a stone, she was able to save Zeus from suffering this fate. Anyways, but you get this crazy um, story of conflict that Socrates, those stories aren't true. And we can't have people believing in these stories and thinking that the gods actually act
2: this way. I find it interesting how easily all of uh, Socrates' interlocutors agree that none of this stuff is true. I mean, I I would think that we'd have at least some people going, going, hang on, hang on. If we tell the story that the gods did this, well, you know, didn't they do it? Otherwise, why are we telling the stories?
0: Yeah, you know, it's a super interesting thing, isn't it? I mean, I don't know that I ever spent much time thinking about the extent to which your average ancient Greek person took the stories that I used to read as a kid, literally, or whether they were stories or, you know, whether their point was metaphorical or not. But at least here, they all seem to pretty much take it for granted that we all know these stories aren't true, right? So, and they're dangerous, so we definitely aren't going to tell these stories.
2: Yeah, apparently we also uh, are not going to tell any stories in which the gods uh, do harm uh, to uh, mortals. Yeah, for the same reason, I guess, basically. Yeah. So, yeah, if the... If the gods are good, then they must be described as good, so we will have no stories of the gods doing evil.
0: Right, which they couldn't have done because the gods are good, and they right. wouldn't do evil in that way.
2: Yeah, it makes a reference to Homer talking about uh, uh, Zeus having uh, a, a jar of good and a jar of evil, uh, and um, that he allots some of each to, eat to everybody. Yeah, right, right.
0: That's super interesting because I mean it's it's related to Christian theological reflection about the nature of evil though so you know Socrates doesn't spend any time unpacking that Um Yeah well so um these sections worry a lot of people just because it seems like there is a lot of censorship going on do you guys have thoughts on the uh the stories that will be allowed to be told in the Callipolis
2: Well, I think it depends on which level of censorship we're talking about. Uh, When we're talking about uh, exerting some control over what stories uh, the young people are going to be taught, uh, it seems to me that we do this all the time. Uh, Because what we're doing here, we're designing curriculum. So what are the stories that are going to get put into, I mean, we would call them like the readers or, you know, the the lesson books or things like that. And so, and we do this, we screen through and we go, okay, we want ones, we want stories that will put forward the right values, uh, and get across the right lessons. So, uh, if I've got a story here about someone who, you know, lies and cheats, uh, and, uh, succeeds and everything is great and this person wins, well, I'm not going to give that to the kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it gets a little bit more troubling when we sort of uh, take this to the level of saying that if someone writes a play uh, that doesn't meet these criteria, we're not going to let this person do the play. So now we, when we get a little further out into, you know, bigger picture, you know, society, then the you know, modern liberal sensibilities start to recoil and we start going, no, no. Let people put on controversial plays. If they're bad, we won't go watch them. Yeah, well yeah. If they're
0: if they're if they're bad, they can be untrue stories that are nevertheless valuable and true, so it's not just a problem with, say, fiction um versus versus nonfiction, but we just can't have stories of gods castrating other gods. Can't have that. Um but uh but it but it is true I think, and for what it's worth, I, I, was, tr- I was trying to find the note. Um, I feel like there was a note somewhere in my text that suggested that that particular bit about not being able to put shows on, it was more that they weren't going to fund shows. But it's certainly the case that there is a kind of a sensibility that's very distant than the modern sensibility. But, I mean, but uh, as both of you said, I, I, it is the case, actually, that Um, I mean, especially when we're talking about the education of children, we think hard about what we want to expose them to and what we don't want to expose them to. Um, I don't know, you know, I encourage my kids to read Greek mythology, if only for a certain kind of uh, um, cultural competence. Um, I was super big into Greek mythology. I guess that makes me a bad, a bad parent. Um.
1: Only according but, to Socrates. I
0: mean, yeah. Only according to Socrates. <laughs> well, I mean, but um, if he doesn't know, right? Who does? But it. It. But it does bring out this question that I think is nice in some ways. And Joshua, you were getting at this, like, what's what's the purpose of it of an education? Like, um, educations aren't really generic. We're always educating people with some particular eye as to what the good life is. Um, and you know, and. In this case, he's literally doing that because the whole point of this exercise is to try to understand what the nature of justice in the individual psyche is. But, um, you know, we might not think about that much, but education is always aiming towards some telos of some kind. And then, you know, um, different different visions of what the good life is are going to require very different kinds of education.
1: Yeah, and I think what Socrates has right here, though, is that it is all of society that is always educating your children. Like it is not only mm. what they're getting in the, like the official curriculum at school. So I'm not, I'm not pro censoring everything out of a city. Um, I'm not, I'm not taking his side on this, but I am saying like, he has a point, like um, especially like in our, in our modern era, you know, where kids can get on uh, YouTube and see anything at any time uh, or, you know, whatever, like, there's there's just a like we've we've pulled out all the stops on censorship and gone the opposite direction uh, almost and i just feel like uh yeah, the, there's, there's less and less that a curriculum can do <laughs> in a way, you know, I hope that doesn't sound too cynical or hopeless. Cause I'm not hopeless on those things, but, um, there, there is a, there's a real fight, I think, between the curriculum and society sometimes as far as, as what's what, what will actually lead you to the good life. And so having everybody on the same page on that would be, um, would be helpful, I think. Um, but the, the way you go about that, I think, is when you then start to get into a lot of trouble.
0: Yeah, well, Socrates is definitely aiming in that. He thinks you need to have a particular kind of society to accomplish all of that. Uh, we'll get to all of that stuff in subsequent books. Um, we're probably at the point in our time together where we should start to um, wrap things up and think about bringing this to a close. Are there other topics uh, that happen in book two that either of you would uh, that we didn't get to and that either of you wanted to note
2: I don't think so I think we uh think we've covered uh, what I had in mind to talk about
0: how about you Joshua uh
1: yeah I think I'm, I'm satisfied uh this this has been a really uh interesting conversation I've enjoyed having it and um I feel like we've covered a lot of territory there's there's obviously a lot more uh in this book but uh we, we don't want to go on for hours and hours so uh, I think we hit the high points
0: Super. Yeah, well, this has been a lot of fun having this little conversation. It's not often that I uh, just end up discussing a book of classical Greek philosophy with with, uh, two new acquaintances, but it's been fun. Um, Okay, well, thanks a lot for listening. You have wasted another perfectly good hour listening to The Cork Curriculum. This is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Filippic is our press liaison. If you'd like to learn more about the network, check us out at christianhumanist.org. You can also find us on Twitter at network. And on behalf of Joshua and Charles, thanks a lot for listening and stay tuned for the next episode where we'll tackle Book 3 of the Republic. Thanks.